Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we thank you that we get to gather in this place. We thank you for a long-standing history of gospel witness particularly on this corner in this city. And Father, as we see the way that you are writing the story of your church and the small piece that we as a church get to play in that bigger picture, we pray that today you would help us to come to grips with some of our own history as a nation, as a city, to, to come to grips with some of our own attitudes and heart postures that, that need to be confronted and also to be able to, that we pray that your spirit would move in this time, that, that we would, we would, that healing would come where healing is needed. Father, we want to be a part of your work, called as your people. That's the day, give us clarity, give us understanding, give us an openness, and give us ears to hear. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Redemption Hill Church is, uh, actually, we didn't make a big thing of it this year, but August 21st is Redemption Hill's birthday, which is Tuesday, and we are seven years old on Tuesday. Um, and, and so we have seen God doing some incredible things over the last seven years and seen the seeds of the gospel planted in this city and a church grow in, from that work. And so in that, though, we also, coming in, so I came in as we planted and um, and we were sent in by a church in Annadale, Virginia, and um, I, he's going to hate that I'm doing this, but our sending pastor is here this morning, and he surprised me by coming, and so Bill Kynes is here. Um, and Redemption Hill would not exist if it wasn't for Cornerstone calling us and helping us and providing accountability for us, and particularly if Bill Kynes hadn't, hadn't had the vision to, to allow and open the door for us to do the work. So over the last seven years, we have really been in a journey of trying to learn the context that we are in and trying to learn the history and the culture of D.C. because we don't want to just come in and, and be separate from those things. We want to see the good of our city. We want to see the flourishing of our city and, the, and peace and healing come to this place. Um, three and a half years ago, that led us to a point where we as a church, three, three and a half years ago, had a Saturday seminar we did on the gospel and race. And we had an ethnically diverse panel. We had a panel discussion, had some Q&A. Um, there's probably like four of you that were part of the church at that point um, because of the turnover that we see every year. Um, but that was something that was important. We wanted to step into this dialogue then. And we had a decent showing, not as many as I'd hoped. This was following um, the, the conflicts in Ferguson, but the temperatures had cooled a little. And, 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 but when we had that seminar three and a half years ago, um, I got pushback. And the pushback I got was, was things along the lines of, like, why are we even talking about this? Why is, why, and, and not even that, but it was, it, I got pushback of, like, why are we talking about this issue and not this issue? As if we can pit different issues against themselves and they have to compete with each other, rather than seeing there's brokenness here that the church needs to push into. Even more than that, I got pushback as, as some well-intentioned people said, you know, talking about race as a church will only perpetuate racism. No. 
That is false. We, I mean, over the last few years, we've seen that, that racism is, is more alive and well than any, I think any of us thought it, than I thought it was, and, and things have bubbled up to the surface. It's not as if just ignoring it is going to make it go away. That's not how sin works. We know that in our own lives, but, but is, if we don't learn about these things, talk about these things, and, and posture ourselves to see healing come, it's never going to be, it's never going to heal. And so all that told me three and a half years ago was not, it didn't make me go, oh gosh, we shouldn't talk about these things anymore. This didn't go like I wanted it to. I got some pushback. I had some people mad at me. I had some people confront me and, and some people that eventually ended up leaving our church. It, to me, that just told me, gosh, we clearly need to do a better job of talking about this. If that's going to cause such deep divide just over a one Saturday seminar, then we need to do some work. And so over the last three and a half years, we've done a lot of work as a church. If you've been around, you may or may not have seen some of it. So a year and a half ago, I, I did a reading series and, and started that I called a re-education on race. And I started educating myself, inviting you as our church to join me in that. Over the past year, we've had a discussion group that included every ethnic minority member of Redemption Hill getting together to, to learn from each other and hear from each other. And that has led now to this series that we've been walking through together in, in saying, hey, we need a theological foundation to be able to talk about these things, and while in a culture and in a world where people talk past each other, we want to have the ability to actually see each other and speak to each other. And so today, we are going to face our history. We have a theological foundation that we laid in the first few weeks. We've, we saw the diversity of the early church, and today we turn to understanding our place in the story that God is writing and in his work through history. We have to deal with the past and talk about the past. We need to dig for truth and tell the truth. We need to repent where we can repent, and we need to collaborate and work hard together to move things forward. And so what we're going to do today is take a survey of... Christianity in America, including a clear-eyed look at the role that Christians have played in racial divisions and injustice. That is a ton of material to cover. There are books and books and books and books written about these things, and so I'm not going to be able to hit every detail of it, um, and, but I do want to take a survey of things, and, I, and this is important for us. Um, we'll also look at the history of D.C. and work toward under, a greater understanding of the historic brokenness of our city and how the gospel can bring healing and rec reconciliation in this place. And so there's, there's one big idea for us today, church. Um, there's going to be a lot of content that I'm going to throw at you. Stick with it. Um, we are going to look to Scripture as well. And as we walk through it, the big idea today is we have come a long way, but we have a long way to go. And so with that, we'll begin in James chapter 2. James, brother of Jesus, was writing to the Jewish diaspora, the 12 tribes of Jewish people who had turned to Christ throughout the Roman Empire and the known world. And as he wrote to them, um, James confronted some issues that he knew about in the churches. And in chapter 2 in particular, um, we, we come to a really critical passage in his letter. He said this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the and ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in, it fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery but do not murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we begin today, is again, a lot of ground to cover, but as we begin, we need to, we're going to begin with um, the myth that Christianity is a white man's religion. And this is something that I do hear and hear people say, that there is a white man's religion that was imposed then on other people. We need to dispel that myth. We need to remember that the apostles were all Middle Eastern men. They weren't Europe, white European Westerners. Antioch, one of the earliest churches, was hugely diverse. And, and there were Northern African voices that shaped the theology of the church in the earliest days. And I don't know how some of this has gotten literally whitewashed, where we, like the pictures and paintings in art that we have depicting some of these fathers it shows them as being something other than what I believe they are. And so we had Tertullian from Carthage in Tunisia. Tertullian is the, is the church father that coined the word Trinity in battling the modalists, and he helped frame the discussion for us on how to understand the Godhead as three persons, one God. Origen of Alexandria contributed to the way that we read scripture and the way we interpret biblical texts. Athanasius in Alexandria battled against the heretic Arius and established an affirmation of the full deity of Jesus Christ, God in flesh. And Augustine of Hippo was in Algeria, what is modern-day Algeria. Augustine's confessions are arguably the first autobiography in Western literature. He had, his theology has had a massive shaping influence on Christianity and Western philosophy that continues today. And, and for our church that finds itself in, particularly in a stream of theology in, in, from the Reformers, the Reformers were heavily reliant on Augustine and his theology as they recaptured the gospel in the 1500s. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois and Henry Mitchell are, have argued convincingly that African religion is the only black institution that survived slavery. And so we need to know that slavery was never a white missionary enterprise. And even today, there are similarities between uh, African-American churches and traditional African churches. And so with all of that, the, the, this is not a religion that is confined to, begun by, or primarily about white Western people. And... With all of that, let's remember that we worship Jesus, who took on flesh and walked this earth as a Middle Eastern man from a backwater town in Galilee, whose own people asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
And so today, the most powerful movements of Christianity we see are in the global south. They're not led by white Europeans and Americans. And so we need to begin there and say this is a much broader thing, a global, a global movement of God's spirit that has never been centered on, on white Europeans and Americans. Now, as, let's talk about some American history. Today, as we look at American history briefly, we're going to talk about American history in black and white. I am drawing heavily on two primary sources for this. Um, and so you can go and read these if you're more interested in, in really digging into more. The first one is called Oneness Embraced. It's a book by Tony Evans, who's a pastor, um, an African-American pastor who I've listened to my whole life. Um, I love his ministry, and he wrote a book that traces the history of the, of the black church and, and tells a story that, is too, that too often goes untold. Also, I'm drawing on a book by a church historian named Douglas Sweeney. Um, Dr. Sweeney was, teaches at, at my alma mater, at the seminary that I went to. Um, he wrote a book called The American Evangelical Story that gets into some of these details. I also heard him present the same things at a lecture in January. And so that's some of my, my primary source material that I'm working with today. But we need to look at the history of our nation to understand how we got to this moment and understand even the role that the church played in that reality. So from the Great Awakening forward, Christians participated in racial injustice and sin. There's a reality that the church was actively involved in perpetuating these things. Now, there are some facts that we need to understand of chattel slavery and what has happened in this nation's past. This is another thing is um, if you haven't been to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, go to the museum, spend some time, walk through, face the realities and see what, his, what, the, what the history really is. So a few facts. 500,000 slaves were brought into the U.S. from Africa, but the number of enslaved African Americans grew to 4 million by 1860. Four million people. In 1863, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. 1865, the Civil War ended the system of slavery in this country. But to understand that background of what happened as those 500,000 people were brought in, it grew to four million, and, and what happened, we need to understand the church's role in this system. And, and understand that the gospel that was preached to slaves is not the same as the gospel that we preach and continue to preach today. Christians owned slaves in this country. But they, they preached that spiritual equality was different from physical equality. And so they taught that Christian baptism frees you from the chains of your sin, but does not free you from the chains of slavery. Slave owners feared that ministries to slaves, that people were trying to, trying to evangelize into these, these settings, that they were economically unsettling, and so they tried to minimize and keep those things at bay. There was a heavy emphasis on obedience, and there was a gospel preached that had no social impact, and the emphasis to churches was to just preach the gospel and avoid divisive topics. Those attitudes do continue today. If we preach a gospel that has no social impact, if we preach a gospel that doesn't have hands and feet that make a difference in reality, in, the, in our lives and in our city, and, and we still have that cry of just preach the gospel and don't get into divisive things, we need to understand that that concept and that mentality has deep roots in this nation that we need to stand and say that is a wrong perspective. The gospel does impact life. Christ's kingdom does extend and have implications for the way we approach the oppressed, the poor, those who are on the margins of society. Um, still, somehow, enslaved African-American people loved Jesus. 
It's miraculous. I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, but, but enslaved people would, would there is um, an autobiography by Reverend Peter Randolph that has a powerful, powerful portrait of what religion looked like. He ended up becoming a freed man and writing this autobiography, talking about the secret meetings that, they, that enslaved people would have in the woods and in the bayous and getting away from the eyes of their masters, and he said that if discovered, they escape if possible, but those who are caught often get whipped And sometimes when a slave on being whipped calls out to God, he is forbidden to do so under the threat of having his throat cut or his brains blown out. Oh, reader, this seems very hard that slaves cannot call on their maker when the case most needs it. The fact that African-American slaves turn to Jesus to find hope in suffering and hope for freedom is nothing short of miraculous. The black church that grew out of this is nothing short of a miracle of God's work. We also need to denounce evil for what it is. Say this is in the past, and it was wrong, and not to glaze over it or gloss over it or pretend that we've got, just gotten past it. Um, Frederick Douglass, um, D.C. man, said this. He said, what I have said respecting and against religion... I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Now, most of the time that I see this quote used, I see people start with that, that last statement that I read. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. We need to be careful here because Frederick Douglass wasn't saying all of Christianity. He wasn't saying all Christians. He had a very particular, he wanted, he was very clear to say, what I am saying against religion here is strictly applied to the slave-holding religion of this land. And that, 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 that to recognize between actual Christianity of Christ and that Christianity, there's the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive one is good, pure, and holy is, uh, is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. And Charles Spurgeon preached strongly from London. And Spurgeon, a London preacher in, in the same era, said, by what means, think you, were the fetters riveted on the wrist of our friend who sits there, a man like ourselves, though of black skin? It is the church of Christ that keeps our brethren under bondage. If it were not for that church, the system of slavery would go back to the hell from which it sprung. And so Christ's free church, bought with his blood, must bear the shame of cursing Africa and keeping her sons in bondage. Even our own venerated theologians fell into these traps. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. George Whitfield the great revival preacher that who, who, was, uh, who was widely cited as the major voice for the Great Awakening fought for slavery in Georgia. Charles Hodge defended slavery, and you can see his, he, one of his uh, first edition of one of his books written to defend slavery theologically is on display in the Museum of the Bible just down the street. Samuel Davies is a Presbyterian minister who baptized hundreds but refused to connect freedom to life. 
and it took British gunboats to end the slave trade and a civil war to end the system of slavery in this nation. And yet, somehow, it's a complicated history. The, the history of white evangelicals in this country is filled with stumbling points, but also there was an advance of the gospel globally, that there was an opposition to slavery publicly and politically, that there were Christians who fought these systems and, and th fought through subversive activity. And so John Wesley and the Quakers and Jonathan Edwards Jr. In the and in the Second Great Awakening, there was a turn, and they were joined by David Walker and Frederick Douglass and Nat Turner. And it, after the Civil War, Reconstruction seemed to give light and hope to future equality, and that was crushed by Jim Crow, and the results are still with us today. 19th and 20th century revivals that Christians still look back to, these revivalists as, as figures that we lift up and celebrate, like Dwight Moody and Billy Sunday, and even Billy Graham supported segregation in their meetings. And Billy Graham didn't desegregate until 1954. And so that's the kind of white moderate that Dr. King addressed in his letter from a Birmingham jail when he said, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And so this really is the miracle of the black church then. It may exist, but I don't know of another example of an oppressed people picking up the religion of their oppressors voluntarily. And so there's a beauty and a glory to the black church. As things continued to develop, um, eventually whole denominations were formed. And so the African Methodist Episcopal and AME Zion, Christian Methodist Episcopal, Progressive National Baptists, and Church of God in Christ. And by the 1970s, it's estimated that there were 24 million African American Christians in this nation and yet they were broadly unknown in public Christian circles and white folks knew nothing about it. And so there's something miraculous here. For those of us, some of us who are here grew up in black church traditions and understand theologies of suffering and lament and freedom and liberation. And so uh, those of us who didn't grow up in that setting have a lot to learn from you and from the historic black church. There's a richness of faith and love and community and social engagement that is beautiful and good. And it's not limited. Now, our nation's history obviously isn't just limited to the black-white divide. There's, there's other, other ethnicities that have been part of this nation's story. We don't have the ability to get into the dynamic of everyone this morning. But one other highlight that I wanted to make is, is Latinos. Um, is, it, you know, Chewy has come into the office, and we've had even greater opportunity to learn from him on some of these things. That, that the, we forget sometimes, and if you grew up with, in, a more, in a white suburban setting like I did, our histories didn't talk about these things this way, that that most of the Western United States was just a sparsely populated northern Mexico. But we've been taught manifest destiny. And so we, we don't hear the stories of Roman Catholic colonialism and how Europeans decimated the Caribbean and Latin America and entire people groups of the Caribbean don't exist anymore. That we, we, we forget, again, that Mexican land was seen with manifest destiny, which at its core is the destiny of white people to take over and rule Mexican land the size of Western Europe. And so Latinos have continued to be pushed to the periphery economically and politically. Native Americans pushed to the periphery economically and politically, pushed to the periphery at best. And 
We need to hear these things because we also need to recognize that the future of American Christianity is multi-ethnic. Now, we've seen Revelation 7, there's a vision of Christ's throne that is every people, tribe, language, nation, and, and that he is gathering people, all people to himself. We are a part of that. Now, obviously, every individual local church isn't going to see the fullness of that vision. Like, we, made, we had limitations as soon as we opened our mouths and spoke English. We're, we don't have people of every language in our local body, but we want to be a part of the story God's writing and understand how we've gotten to where we are and the divides that have happened. And so in that, understanding that we can't continue to be colorblind. We have to see people and see their story and see ethnicity and learn from each other um, and, and also understand that this is, all, this is going to be a reality. Um, the Brookings Institute estimates that by 2045, the United States will be less than 50% white. And again, God's moving in the global south. 77% of Latinos are Christians and 25% are evangelical Christians. Asian Americans are increasingly involved in top-level leadership in parachurch movements and Christian movements. And, and so I, we can't hit all the dynamics today, but suffice it to say that the history of this nation, its treatment of Native peoples, its handling of Africans and African Americans, that these are foundational aspects of the American story and the wounds of these, these actions continue through today. And it's interwoven with American Christianity. It has had a, an impact on the soul of this nation and impacts every one of us, whatever our ethnicity. So that's a broad history. Now, what about D.C.? We find ourselves in a very strange place. This place, because we're not in a state, nobody really knows what we are. Um, they don't know what to do with us. Um, if you haven't been in D.C. long, or if you're new today, or you don't live in D.C. and you're just visiting with us, you may have no idea why it's shaped the way it is, and you look at it and say, what, what is this? Most cities don't have clearly defined edges like that and corners. And so a brief history of D.C. and where we find ourselves, and then we're going to get back into James 2. D.C. was organized as a federal district in 1802. It was a 10-mile by 10-mile square area because the Constitution laid out a, that the capital would not be greater than 100, 100 square miles. And so they had land donated from Maryland and Virginia. When we first moved out here, um, I had Virginians tell me, well, you know, Arlington County in Alexandria used to be D.C. That is true. And in 1846, there was an act of retrocession. The city of Alexandria was economically depressed and reliant on slave trade. They feared the rise of the abolitionist movement, and so they petitioned the Virginia General Assembly to vote to take back the Virginia portion, and they, they negotiated it out, and it worked. And so that's how we get our shape, is that is the 10-mile by 10-mile square that stops at the Potomac River. And after the Civil War, there was an influx of African-American people, of freed slaves, because people sought proximity to the White House for safety. Um, in 1868, Congress granted D.C.'s African-American male residents the right to vote in municipal elections. In 1868. But then in 1874, just six years later, Congress revoked local elections. And there were no locally elected officials deeply connected to racial politics, Congress didn't want to have African Americans in control over the nation's seat of government. Following World War II, there was white flight, like a lot of cities, and that led to the rise of Chocolate City. If that term is unfamiliar to you and you live in the district, you need to go do research and learn about the place that you live. Chocolate City came as a rise, the first major American city to be majority black. In 1967, they, the first African-American mayor was appointed, Walter Washington, and also for the first time a majority black city council. In 1968, Dr. King was assassinated, and this city felt the press of that. That event led to, and the city descended into riots. 
on 14th Street Northwest, on U Street and the U Street Corridor, 7th Street Northwest, and 8th Street Northeast. Still today, you know those streets. And if you've been around any amount of time here, you know those places because those are the places we go out to stores, those are the places we go out to eat. They're economic hubs of the city. And those are the places where the riots erupted. 12 people were killed, 1,100 injured, and 6,100 people arrested. There were 1,200 buildings burned and estimated damages in 68 of $27 million. The major corridors for black business had been burned down. That led to greater poverty and racial isolation here. Five years later, in 1973, there was the Home Rule Act that restored the right for DC residents to elect local government officials, and that structured our current system with a mayor and 13 on the city council with 37 advisory neighborhood commissions. And that eventually led to the rise of DC's mayor for life, Marion Barry, who was elected four times in this city and was on the city council till his death. The demographics have been changing rapidly over the last 20 years in this place, though. The African-American population in 2000 was at 60% of DC's residents. By 2010, 10 years later, it was 51%, and the estimate in 2018 is 45%, while the population has grown to 700,000 in just 65 square miles. So the revitalization of the district is complicated. It's not like some cities where massive neighborhoods have been bulldozed and overtly forced people out, but there has been, as some have called it, a commoditization of black culture. New affluent residents want a historic connection and have contributed to what some have called gilded ghettos. And so that's where we find ourselves, church. This is the reality of, of the city that we're in. I said, we have the privilege to meet here at Ebenezer that was founded in 1838. Um, and, and the reason this church was founded is, was because the African-American members of a, a white affluent church, had grown, the membership had grown to the point where they couldn't fit in the balcony and gallery of that church. And so they founded their own church. It was the, this place was the first school for African-American children in the District of Columbia. And they are celebrating this year 180 years of gospel witness on this corner. It's a legacy that we, are, that we love, and it's a history that we celebrate. So we just covered a lot of ground very quickly. In light of the story of this country, let's return to James 2 and hear this again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has, God not, chose, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And again, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Um, Church, I think I was the only one to respond there. Um, This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, at its core, what we're going to see in the time that we have left from James 2 is there's a call, biblically, from start to finish to love your neighbor. At its very core, racism and the racial injustices of this nation, it's many, and, and, and the intertwining of Christianity and the church with them, were a, a failure to love our neighbor, that, to love those who bear the image and likeness of God, that, that reflect his beauty and glory and, and are worthy of that dignity. And so it, it, that's what we're going to address today is that is what do we do in light of our history? How do we respond to these things, and how do we, how do, wh- where do we head with this? So the first thing is we love our neighbor is first lift up the dignity of all people. Now, the language here, favoritism, may have been coined by New Testament authors, but it, it happens in several passages through the New Testament with multiple authors. So it's not just James, but this Greek word here literally means to receive the face. And so this is the idea of favoritism here. And now James gets into an application of rich and poor. But we need to understand the language here of favoritism extends beyond that. It's it's a concept of making any kind of judgment against someone else, against another human being that is based on external experience. And so that could be, whether they're rich or poor, that could be ethnicity and skin color, it could be gender, that men and women, and so and these are things that every one of us does, that we, we see people, and because of our own background and either lack of experience with people, or sometimes our experiences shape us, so that when we see people, we immediately will make evaluations and judgment calls about who they are. We do it innately. We do it. It's, it is a human condition that that happens. And so as, as we understand that, we need to begin to undercut that and lift up the dignity of all people. That, that it, we need to hear James' words that, that when we make th- these kinds of distinctions among ourselves, we be, can become judges with evil thoughts, that there's a royal law in Scripture to love our neighbor, that this is when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And before there could be a follow-up question, he said, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, as the one who bears God's image and likeness. And so how do we do this? Well, we can lift up people's dignity first just by being a lifelong learner, to, to ask people who they are and what their story is, to, to learn more broadly, read history, read biographies, read sociology, and, and, and meet with people. And just, there should be a holy curiosity among God's people to learn and to, to hear what people have experienced, to hear their stories, to hear what their passions and heartbeat is. To, this lifts up and brings dignity for people. This is what we see in Paul, the apostle, when he went to Athens and, and he was in the marketplace, in dialogue with people, learning their culture, learning their poets, learning about a place that was not his home and a people that he didn't know. We need that holy curiosity. Another way we can lift up people's dignity is to cherish people. Uh, Paul Miller, and I love this, he says, when I think of how Jesus loved people, the word cherish comes to mind. When we cherish someone, we, we combine looking at them, seeing them, and compassion. 
we notice and care for that person. We don't shut them out. Gosh, we would do so much better if we would cherish each other. This again, where we unpack the myth of colorblindness. It's, it's not dignifying to say, I'm colorblind, I don't see you. It's, instead, we need to learn to say, I see you and I want to learn everything that you've experienced. I want to I hear you I, and, and I want to care for you as I see you. This is simple, just make eye contact and smile when you see people. Can you imagine the simple act of making eye contact with people as you get on the metro? Like, you, you know that uncomfortable spot on the metro where everybody's looking for the negative space? You make eye contact with somebody and you're like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you feel that wash of shame come over you? Like, there's, I mean, listen, it's not missional in and of itself just to, to be friendly but it certainly could open a doorway for actual connection and relationship with somebody that could lead to gospel fruit by beginning by being friendly. It is countercultural in the District of Columbia to see somebody and to look them in the eye and to smile and say hello. This is not a very high bar, church. We are starting with about as simple a thing as we could. Love your neighbor by seeing them and cherishing their existence. Speak up when you see evil and denounce it. Some of you are terribly uncomfortable with the history that we just recounted. Some of you were fact-checking me in your mind and going, I don't know about that, or mm, I wish you wouldn't have spun it that way. Learn the history. Face it. Deal with it. Dig into the facts as much as you can, and when things are wicked, don't brush them away because it's uncomfortable. Call it out and say, this was evil. We need to be able to have the boldness that we read in, in Frederick Douglass to say, hey, this slaveholding religion, it is the, it is, there is the farthest gap between the Christianity of this land and the, and the Christianity of Christ. To have the boldness of Spurgeon saying, saying that if it were not for the church, this system of slavery would go back to the hell from which it sprung because Christ's free church contributed to people's bondage. We need to be able to see those things and denounce those evils and call out what's wrong. And currently when we see evil as well. And on the other side, we need to call out the good that we see in people. That's why in Romans 12, Paul calls the church to be competitive and outdo one another in love and how we honor each other. So we need to be aggressive with each other in calling out the good that we see, calling out God's image and likeness and the reflections of him that we see in each other. This, this, I mean, you know this, right? When somebody encourages you, that means they breathe courage into your soul. And when somebody can see in you some way that God is working in you, you can, and like, it doesn't matter what gets thrown at you when that happens. You, your spirit gets lifted because you, somebody has noticed something good in a world that will only find what is wrong. Let's do that for each other and lift each other up by breathing courage into each other. And within all of this, let, can we get to a point where we can admit as individuals that we just don't have all the answers and that we need to learn and to listen? And treating people with dignity means seeing them the way that God does. And the intensity of his love and pursuit is shown for us in Christ and that he went to the cross. So church, things have come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. We love our, as we love our neighbor, we need to lift up the dignity of all people. The second thing we need to do is repent. Every one of us. Now, to be clear, we denounce what was evil, and repentance is, is a posture over the sin that we have committed or been complicit in committing, and so let's not confuse those two. Um, but here's the reality. 
what the things we're talking about are at the core of human sin, that, that every one of us wants safety and significance. And so in a desire for safety, we turn to what's comfortable, and what's most comfortable for us is people who are like us. Now, that gets cut differently for different people, and I don't know what it is for you. It could be on, on ethnic lines. that it could, some, Sometimes people are more comfortable in one ethnic group, and so they stick to that because it feels safe. It might not be ethnic lines for you, but it could be life stage. Like, listen, college students, I love you. I know that most of them are going to be at the 5 p.m. because it's too early. Um, but, like, college is this weird bubble, right, where you're all in the same life stage, you're all in, like, dorm life, you're all in school together, and so there's a different kind of diversity that's fostered in that setting because there's a commonality of stage of life and experience that's able to bring people together. That, and, and so even there, like, do you, can, if you're a college student, break out of that bubble and get to know some of the families in the church that are at a different life stage than you. But, but we all, and, and it could be, it could be socioeconomic lines. There's all kinds of ways we cut this, but we surround ourselves with people who are like us so that we can feel safe, who look like, talk like, vote like, etc. Our desire then, it, we also have a desire for significance. We want our lives to matter. We want our, what we care about to matter. And so significance drives us into tribalism. And the, in the whole of human history is repeated cycles of people reaching for control and using violence and marginalization to force others down in order to maintain that control and significance. That's, there's so much of our tensions that are the human condition. But what the gospel shows us is that every person is of infinite worth, that every one of you, that you here today, no matter, some of you have come in here feeling beat down and crushed and, and just ridden with guilt and shame, you need to hear every one of you bears the image and likeness of God. There is, God looks at you and sees a reflection of some of, of his aspects, some of his, his beauty and glory in you. And so in light of the Imago Dei, our tribalism is dumb. It's, it's stupid. It doesn't make sense theologically. If you're a Christian and you've bought into that God created every person, that from one man he made every nation of men, that, that all men and women bear his image and likeness, that we are broken and sinful on our own, that our only hope is that, G that God took on flesh to save us because we, we will just make things worse. And so he, he took on flesh, lived a perfectly holy life that did cherish people, that did lift up their dignity, that did challenge authority, and then he also died in our place for our sin, was raised to life, conquering sin and death for all time, and now reigns and rules from his throne in heaven. If that's what you believe, then falling into any fractures that exist culturally and in this world, rather than seeing the unity of what Christ is doing in forming a new humanity, it's stupid and theologically contradictory. We've got a, such a better story to tell and to show. And so every one of us has something we can repent of today. If you're a Christian, this should be easy. It should never be hard to repent. Like Jesus outed you on the cross that you're not holy enough to earn God's pleasure. It should be easy for us to admit when sin is exposed to admit that we're hopeless sinners, reliant on a great Savior. So we need to repent of our own blind self-righteousness. We need to repent of ways that we fall into captivity to our own culture. We need to repent of not loving our neighbor. We need to turn from the things that we've done that have been wrong and turn to something better. We need to repent of otherizing people, of falling into the things that James confronts here, of showing partiality to people, and, and, and turn to loving people. Now, some of you might have something specific to repent of to someone specific today. Don't let the sun go down. 
get it taken care of. But let me also say that we need to talk about what repentance is not as we have these discussions. Um, it, repentance is not penance. And our sorrow doesn't atone for us. Only Christ atones. And so repentance isn't about feeling sad enough. And, and let me just say this as well, because I've heard this enough times from our fr my friends and our members who are ethnic minorities. Church, if you're part of this church and you're white, repentance doesn't mean finding an ethnic minority member as fast as you can, as close as you know, the nearest one to you, and telling them how sad you are today because of the history lesson. You can express sorrow, but rather than just say, will you listen to me and how sad I am? See, Manda's with me. Like, <laughs> white people, you need to hear this. You grabbing the closest minority and saying, I just want to tell you how sad I am, is narcissistic. It's saying, I've heard these things, and now let me make this story about my feelings. No. Keep learning. Grab somebody and take them out to lunch and buy them food and then say, tell me about yourself, tell me about your experience. Posture yourself to learn. If there's ways that you need to repent to somebody, do it. Repent. But repentance is turning away from sin to embrace the way of Christ and to embrace him as our savior. So we need to denounce what was evil, we need to repent of sin we've committed, and let's not confuse the two. Third, and finally, we need to apply the gospel in both speech and action. Now listen, the, the gospel has to show up, and this is James saying, listen, if, if my brothers, if someone has faith but not works, can that faith save him? Your faith has to show up in your life. We are not going to just preach the gospel and pretend that social brokenness doesn't exist. No, no, no. When we preach the gospel, that engages with our world and brings healing to what is broken. And so what we need to do is we need to get our eyes off of ourselves in this and get our eyes onto Christ. If we don't do that, we'll never embrace people that are unlike us. Now, again, there's all kinds of ways that we can find unity and find diversity in unity. This happens all the time. Like, it's NFL season. Preseason has started, right? This is one of the most wonderful times of the year because hope springs eternal, and I cheer for the Bears, and hope has not had much grounding in reality for a long time. The last time they won was 33 years ago, um, and, uh, which is older than some of you. Um, and, but but you, go to a, you go to an NFL game, and there is a diverse crowd there in unity together. That, like Other divisions fade away because people's eyes are on something else, and we are cheering on one team. You go into an opposing stadium, and there is a unity when you see somebody in the same color jersey as you. Like you can, you'll find, I find myself like giving hugs to people I've never met and singing together as we have songs and almost a liturgy around what happens in American sports. That is a unity that comes that can bring great diversity, but it's also shallow because if we get off of talking about football, all of a sudden, th those relationships can completely fall apart. But there's something we can learn there, again, about the human condition. If we, don't get our, if we just spend time looking at ourselves rather than something that will unify us, we'll never see that unity and diversity come. But it, we have something better than football. We have, we have the gospel. We can look to Christ 
and, and the unity that we all have, that we are broken and need a Savior, that we, that we on our own are in Adam and, and, the, the, and, and in sin and death, but Christ has brought us life and righteousness, and he changes everything. And Peter, Peter says that he, we once were not a people, now he has now made you a people. He brings us together as a kingdom of priests and gives us an identity and a purpose, and, and it, he knits us together as a beautiful tapestry that, that is made more beautiful in its diversity and in its, in its variety of texture and color and experience and ethnicity. And in all of that, we've got to stop the continued defining ourselves primarily from characteristics from before we were united as a people. So praise God that he's called us together. And it's Christ's life and death and resurrection, his ascension, his reign is king that is the good news for every one of us. And if we believe that's true, it'll show up in our lives, the way we talk about people, the way we act toward people. Faith without actions is dead. And so open your eyes. Look around you. Jesus can free us from our cultural constructs. Jesus can free us from spiritualizing our bigotry. He frees us from tribalism. He frees us from despising the other. But that also means we are freed to something, that we are freed to love our neighbor, that we're freed to lift up people's dignity, that we're freed to denounce wickedness and freed to see our own sin and repent. He, we're freed to live self-sacrificially for the good of others. And even Christ came and said, I've come to release the captives and lift up the poor and proclaim good news to the poor, that, that we are freed to invest our lives in the flourishing of the people around us. And that's what we're called to do. That's what the Spirit empowers us to do. And this is the hope that we have when we face the brokenness of our past and our nation's history, our city's history, that we can actually look toward and work toward its healing, that the saving and restorative work of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the brokenness that divides us, that the saving work of Christ is that he, and that he's saving a people for himself and that his church gets to show off that power that transcends the divides. And so we as a church have the opportunity to invest ourselves in the good of this place and to see a unity come that Satan cannot tear apart because the gates of hell will not withstand the advance of Christ's church. So don't run from our history. Let's face it and say, you know what? The church made some grave errors and we will not repeat them. There are things that happened that were wrong. Let's learn from that. There's a better story to tell. We have come a long way. We have a long way to go. Dr. King said we must avoid extreme optimism, the notion that we have come a long way and have nothing to do but wait for the inevitable. We must also avoid extreme pessimism, the notion that we have come nowhere and can do nothing to alter the, our lives. We must say realistically that we have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. We must realize that change does not roll in on wheels of inevitability, but comes through struggle. So Redemption Hill, let's continue to fight for it and struggle together. And let's pray. Father, we need you. We need your help. We need your spirit to move. We, the, we, Lord, Lord, we denounce what has been done that is wicked as people were crushed and pushed down. And we also, as a church, want to say that we are coming in repentance today, that every one of us has fallen into the same systems and mindsets and postures. Will you forgive us? By your spirit, will you free us? Will you move 
even now as we sing and worship together, by your spirit to lift up the brokenhearted that are here, to lift up the people that have come into this place with sorrow crushing them today. Would you breathe by your spirit life and joy and peace and hope? And Father, as you continue to write your story, give us the confidence and rest that Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that we are part of the story you're writing. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.